is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, Zach Albetta here, and you're listening to Working Drummer Podcast. Today I'm talking with Andres Ferrero, who has been in the drum chair for the Broadway production of Hamilton since it opened in 2015. For close to 20 years, Andres has been among the vanguard of Broadway drummers. In addition to Hamilton, his resume boasts Broadway and touring productions of In the Heights, Bring It On, and Book of Mormon. He played a key role in the development of the drum books for In the Heights and Hamilton, and performed on the original cast recording of Hamilton, which won the Grammy for Best Original Cast Recording in 2016, and has since been certified triple platinum. We have new content up on Patreon. It is a studio drumming tutorial by Brian Stevens, who has really outdone himself with 50 minutes of content for us. So huge thanks to Brian for that. If you want to help support Working Drummer Podcast, a donation of as little as $1 a month gets you access to this exclusive educational content on Patreon. For those of you doing the math, Brian's video is 50 minutes long, and that's two cents a minute for you. So go to patreon.com slash working drummer and become a patron in any amount to help us keep going strong. The winner of our Sabian giveaway is Aaron Rosner, or Rosner? Hope I'm one of those is right. Aaron Rosner. Aaron was chosen at random from the people who left us a review on iTunes in October and is the proud owner of a new 16-inch Sabian HHX complex crash cymbal. Thanks to everyone who left us a review, and big thanks to Sabian for sponsoring that giveaway. Please keep those ratings and reviews coming. It's a great way to help new listeners find us. So I found Andres to be a fascinating guy. He approaches what he does with a combination of a really broad base of musical knowledge and a very high emotional IQ about what he values in life and what he wants others to value in him. So please enjoy this talk with the founding father of the Hamilton drum chair, Andres Ferrero. I was reading your bio um, and was kind of fascinated to learn that, that your background um, is is not in hip hop or or uh, you know Latin music or really any of the musicals that you're known for doing, but you have a jazz background. Yeah, that's true. Um, but I definitely played my share of Latin music. Um, I did a lot of that, uh, and it's in my blood. So I grew up listening to it. Right. Uh, as far as hip hop is concerned, it's been a part of my life since I was a kid as well. I just didn't really know that it was hip hop when I was a kid. I just, I just, it was just music to me. Right. Um, and back then it was different, a different kind of hip hop, you know, yeah. back then it was, uh, you know, it was like, to me, it was, it was kind of like, uh, uh, music from like country music. Right. To me, country music will always be Johnny Cash. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and there's a great distinction between old country music and more modern country music. So sure. to me, it was very similar with, with the hip hop and you can sort of see that progression in music in general, but I really honestly was into classical music as a child. Hmm. And that went into, cause I have three older brothers and an older sister and it wasn't really by choice. I just sort of, it was what was on uh, the channel in, in our house. And so, or my parents would listen to it and um, Bach, Mozart, Brahms, Beethoven, like these were the things that uh, Berlioz, these were the composers that were playing uh, in the house. Wow. But I was really sort of taken by Bach. So there was something about Bach's music that really got me. And 
the person that sort of was the vehicle in that was Glenn Gould, who's uh-huh. a, a Canadian pianist. Right. Um, Considered just a, one of the one of the greatest piano soloists ever, right? I would say. I yeah. think he's the greatest, uh, probably the greatest interpreter <clears throat> of box music. I think certainly he was channeling some things that I don't think anyone since or ever will be able to do. I mean, he's just... Uh, his his um, interpretation of the music was second to none right. for, for my taste. Right. And he was just an interesting character. He was one of these people that was really a tall guy and looked so awkward when he was playing because he sat so low and had these long arms. And But he was so charismatic when he played. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> when you learn piano, there are these... Uh, to help you get through the time and the movement, you know, your hands become sort of, it's almost like you're conducting yourself as you're playing. Right. His was on, on a level much higher than that. <laughs> um, and, and his movements were awkward, but beautiful all at the same time. And for me, I was just captivated by him, but also by his ability to have really good time. Like, you know, if you're playing box music, you have to really have good time. Yeah. And his time was impeccable. Yeah. Now, at that age, I didn't. I don't think I really knew that. But looking back, I know that something that I love now about him, and being that I spend, you know, um, most of my life playing to a, a metronome, it's no coincidence that that would be something that would attract me. Right. It's interesting what you said about about his time because I like I've um, I have a classical background as well. I, I played classical music in college. Um, and one of one of my beefs with classical music and classical musicians um, is that I, I feel like sometimes there are too many liberties taken with time. Um, yeah. I, I am fully aware that you know there's there's a lot more push and pull in classical music than most other forms, but I, I feel right. like uh, you know um, just the internal motor of that music or of certain musicians is sometimes just not <laughs> what I think it should be. Um, yeah, but I agree with that. Yeah. I, I really I do agree with that. Yeah, I, I would I would love to. I, I honestly haven't checked out uh, much Glenn Gould, and and Bach is not one of the composers that ever really resonated with me. But now that you said that, I I, I want to check some out and just kind of see and hear what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, there's just a math to him that I, that just uh, resonated with me. But at the same time that I was listening to him play with the um, with the I guess it was the Canadian Broadcast Symphony Orchestra, um, I was also listening to like classic R and B. Right. Commodores. Um, I was listening to the Ohio players. Like, this is really what, like, when it came to the drums, this is like, holy cow, there's now that, there's drums there. Right, right. But I could hear, I could hear drums over box thing. It sure. Very bizarre. You know, there was something <laughs> there that, that, that really grabbed me. But then when you actually heard a drum set and you heard this funky bass line or funky keyboard bass, you know, which was really big in the 80s, 70s and 80s. Right. Um, I just really got into that, you know, and, and that became and they were just things that my brothers sort of played. So it got handed down to me. It wasn't like I discovered it on my own. You know, they happened to be playing it. Mm-hmm. And along with that came Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, you know, um, Kansas 38 special. And then Rush was like the big, <laughs> of course, the, 
Man, and I'll tell you what, Permanent Waves was my first record that was a hand-me-down that survived. I mean, I'm from Rochester, you know, which is like where you find lots of cows, (laughs) (laughs) lots of open, open field and cows. And I think where this record had been trampled on by some animal because it had a major (laughs) scratch in it and i had to listen to it you know i had a record really crappy record player my mom gave me and i remember my first four records were rush crosby stills and nash uh the beatles and it was a thing called dance fever that i had (laughs) (laughs) like disco you know disco music right right and that was sort of my diet of listening because it was there was something so cool about taking a record and putting on this thing that turned and you know I didn't have a drum set so I just sort of sit on the floor and play on the floor and I used my sister's books as like the toms and hi hats yeah. and stuff and I would just listen to these records over and over and over again until finally a friend of mine would lend me a tape or something like that or another record that they had. And now, holy cow, there's more. You know, right. I, I thought yeah. that was it. You know? <laughs> I, I didn't know. Um, so there was a like, I think that my interest in lots of different styles in music came from the fact that my family really they enjoyed my brothers really enjoyed that. And of course we had our staple of Latin, like authentic Latin music, um, South American music. My family's Colombian. So gotcha. there'd be Colombian music, Brazilian, Venezuelan music, yeah. Cuban music. So it's kind of like saying Latin music is kind of a stupid term actually, because it doesn't really tell you what we're talking about. Right. But there was a lot of stuff being played that was, that got into me, you know, right, right. and, um, later it would, you know, it would come out and I would work with it a lot more, but thank God I had that. Yeah. Yeah. And so at at what point do you, do you make the leap from just having this head full of music to actually, uh, pursuing it and playing an instrument and, uh, um, well, there were a lot of drummers, um, but there were a lot of guitar players as well. And I think that I first fell in love with the guitar. My brother had a guitar that I was never allowed to play. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of screwed me over a bit because I always wanted to play the guitar that I couldn't play, you know? Yeah. And uh, I suppose we always want what we're not supposed to have. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, And so the guitar became like a, a, a sort of an obsession of mine. And the drums were there as well, but they didn't really come in until later on. And so I actually started playing guitar in middle school. I played um, in the jazz band. I played guitar, and um, and then I also played in a in a uh, outside group where you'd go and you'd pay for a tuition to go. And you know we really couldn't afford that, so they just sort of gave me a scholarship. And the guy was so cool. His name was Gary. He just sort of let me go, yeah. you know, and let me be a part of it. But. Uh, there, there was enough guitar players and not enough drummers at that, <laughs> at that particular time. So right. I switched over and started playing drums. And I'll tell you what, I started actually playing out and getting paid for gigs when I was probably like eight years old. Really? Eight, eight, yeah, eight or nine years old. And it was like a rockabilly band in Rochester. Wow. And, um, that is super young. I mean, you you hear about guys like maybe in high school they start getting paid to do some little club gigs or whatever. But like you were in grade school. <laughs> I was. Yeah, it started it started really early for me. Yeah. And um I don't know, I think, you know, we 
even as a child, you sort of know whether you want to play sports, if you're into sports, if you're into cars. I guess when you're that age, you like just about everything. They always ask, what do you want to be when you get older? And say, oh, I want to be a fireman or I want to be a cop or who knows what. Right, right. I think music was just always part of my, um, I think it was, it was what I was meant to do. Um, and I've certainly tried other things. <clears throat> I've had my share of, of different jobs and, uh, I would do them an hour from now if I had to, to support my family. I, I have no uh, prejudice against any work. Right. Um, but, um, but I've been fortunate to be able to put those skills to, to, to use to be able to support my family. So. And it sounds like from, from a young age, you, you just had kind of, uh, you, you knew this about yourself. Like I can do this. I want to do this. Uh, this is, yeah. Where it's at. Yeah. I, I, you know, it was different growing up when I was, I don't know how old you are, but I'm, I'm 39. 46. Okay. So okay. you're, you're a little older than me, but, but we're not, we're not far. We're in the same zip code, but <laughs> I, um, it was a different time, you know, when you, when I grew up, you had to really defend yourself. You know, there wasn't, um, especially in Rochester, you know, we, mm-hmm. I grew up in a, in a town where there wasn't, wasn't a lot of minority, you mm-hmm. know, in the yeah. city, the, the inner city there was, but I was in the suburb part of Rochester for the latter part of my schooling. And, um, I was sort of an enigma in the school. There wasn't that many Hispanic in the school at the time and you know it was like me one african-american kid an asian kid um an indian kid right you know so that we each. sort of made up we yeah exactly we <laughs> sort of made up the the, the demographic or whatever mm-hmm. so so there was a lot to contend with at a very early age with that even you know as late as uh, or as early as fourth grade mm-hmm. fifth grade you know and because that was different, it made life difficult at that age. Yeah. And um, I'm, it's cool to have had music to be the one thing that sort of opened the door and be like, hey, this kid, you know, he plays music and he loves music and he loves the same bands that we do. And he actually plays in a, in a little band that, you know, that plays the tunes that we like. So that sort of softened the blow a bit. But um Growing up was kind of rough, you know. Yeah. It had its challenges. So. I, I had a I had a similar experience. I mean, obviously, I'm not a minority. I'm uh, just a straight up white guy. But as a kid, like I wasn't very popular. I didn't feel like I had many friends. Um, and uh, music played the same role for me. It kind of gave me something to look forward to. It was something special that I had that nobody else was really into, and gave me some right. direction and and prevented me from. Uh, you know, not that I have the kind of personality that would get into a bunch of shenanigans, but <laughs> you know, it kind of gave no, me we just all a, could. yeah, right, yeah. right. But it gave me it gave me just a, a a base to work from, you know. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's one of the greatest things that we share. Uh, you know, as as fellow uh, musicians or artists, or whatever, is that the music saved us from taking certain paths that we could have taken that would have made life for everyone 
yeah. our parents, you know, much more challenging. Yeah. And uh, so there's a lot of gratitude for that, for sure. Definitely. I think it, it saved me from uh, from some depression that runs rampant in my family, like multiple generations, including my brother, including my generation, like have wow. all have yeah. all uh, dealt with it. And my wife always asked me, like, why don't you think it, it landed on you? Like, why don't mm. you think it, you know, you had a, much of a problem with that? And it wasn't actually until recently that I realized, but it's like I I had music. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's very cool. Yeah. It's a yeah. very cool thing. So at, at what point do you kind of dive headlong into, into the jazz world? Um, it was later. Um, I was probably in seventh or eighth grade and I was in the jazz band, but I wasn't, I can't say I was like a hundred percent digging what I was doing. I love that you, know? you use the term later. It's like, it's later in seventh grade. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, you in, know, in relation because... to the hillbilly gigs I was doing when I was eight years old, way, right. way further down the road in my career when I was 13. <laughs> but you know, it feels like a lifetime. Right? Of course. Because when yeah, from yeah. eight to like whatever, 12 years old, it is a so lifetime. Much, it's, you know, so much happened yeah, yeah. in that time, you know, and there's yeah. so much learning and, um, I was lucky enough to be um, to grow up in a town uh, that had a great music program in the school. Mm-hmm. Very strong elementary, middle school, and high school was very, very strong. Yeah. So I would say, probably to be fair, around ninth grade was when they started having these jazz festivals, and Eastman School of Music is in Rochester, and they would have these summer jazz programs, <clears throat> and you had to have you had to have some skill to be even considered to do it, you know? And I didn't have any of that at that point for for that style of music. I I really was interested in it, but it's kind of like, um, if you like bourbon or if you're into, you know, those sort of what I call mature adult drinks, uh, you have to develop sort of a palate for it. And I had, I had not at that point. Um, but lucky for me going into ninth grade, um, the, uh, music teacher there is a guy named Ned Corman, and Ned uh, was instrumental in my career. Um, he, he was my mentor and basically helped guide me uh, in the right direction. In addition to that, he was also responsible uh, responsible for bringing Max Roach, Byron Stripling, John Faddis, uh, Paquito Di Rivera, all these people to our school as guest artists through the commission project and meet the composer. Yeah. So you'd get a college student to arrange a piece or write a piece for this artist. And for a week we got to work with this guy and the grand finale was to have a concert. Um, and Ron Carter was one of them. Um, when Max came the first time, um, we did a thing with five drummers, and a, a guy doing the record scratching. Fab Five Freddy was involved in that. Wow. And um, and I wrote a piece for Max and for the five guys and for the the scratcher. And it was it was really awesome to be able to be there. But I had to do a lot of work because my music teacher um, slash mentor was like really very strict with me because he knew that there was talent there and he mm-hmm. knew just how to guide me. Not to push me too hard, but to make sure that I understood that, look, if you're going to do this, you got to do it full on. And uh, he really instilled that in me when I needed that the most, I think, you know. And um, so uh, his wife is an incredible painter. Her name's Linda. And he would use her 
paintings as vehicles to express music and sound and waves and emotion. Mm -hmm. So for us, I mean, how lucky were we to be able to have a visual to be able to, to play, like if we were trying to find a passage and he wanted the horn section or the rhythm section to do it a certain way, he would just turn to this 10 foot piece of, uh, of artwork that he had in the music uh, room. And he'd say, see that little spot towards the bottom? Well, this, this tr- uh, little uh, section has to transition into the upper part where the colors would blend. And it was just like the kids were just, we were all like, oh, my God. You know, that's kind of weird. But then we sort of understood. We're like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. And so yeah. that visual gave us the ability to actually take that and put it into focus with the instrument. Right. You know? Well, I immediately... So lucky. I, I immediately cut to, like, what you do for a living now, which is playing drums in a musical. And, yeah. if, you know, if ever there was a multimedia production, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, yeah. in my in my interview with, with Q, uh, you know, we, we and other people talking about musicals, we've talked about how, you know, it, your your role as the drummer is so much different than it is in, in any other kind of band because all of a sudden your drumming has to sound and feel the way something looks on stage or uh, the way something, um, you know, is, is grabbing the eye of the audience. It's not just from a coordination standpoint, it's from a mood standpoint, from an emotional standpoint. Um, Absolutely. So, it's, yes. I mean, it sounds like that, has, you know, ties directly into what you do now. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just always... I'm so thankful that we had that. And, you know, when you're a kid, you don't realize how lucky you are. But now that I'm older, um, I, I, uh, I, I'm so grateful to have had that opportunity. And I, I, I believe that that kept me open to be able to understand that now you yeah. know, or in any other situation that I'm in. Um, because sometimes we go through, we sort of coast through life without realizing that, oh, my God, I got to look up. Yeah. There's a whole world around us. I was in New York for so many years, and I was, you know, in New York, you just walk like this with your head down. It, it, once you take those things off your eyes and you look, you're like, oh, my God, the buildings are beautiful. And you look around. I mean, there's so much to see. But it's just we sort of go through things without actually taking two minutes to look to see how wonderful everything on the left is and everything right. on the right and behind us. So it's it's been sort of one of those things the last four years realizing there's a lot of very special things around us. Uh, we just have to slow down a little bit to see what, what it is. I finished my uh, junior year and going into my senior year, a phone call came in and uh, Ringling Brothers was in town. Oh, man. And something had happened to the drummer and they needed someone that could, you know, that could that could do it. And I didn't think I could do it Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I could I'd never even thought of playing with the circus, you know, but I played with um, the um, uh, uh, what are these uh, organizations that they have uh, the WW or the. They have these organizations where they have like a big band, but it's usually older guys that play it. The Lions Club is one of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And there there was another one. And I played in both the big bands. So I could sight read, you know. Um, And so my music teacher said, yeah, I've got the guy for you. And he's like, you're going to go and you're going to, and the book is like this big, you never stop playing. Right. You know, and there's like three or four shows a day. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
And I just did it. I filled in, you know, and uh, this worked out scheduling wise. I did it. And uh, then I ended up going on tour with Circus America, which was the there was only two or three ring circuses in uh, America. One of them was Ringling Brothers with its three units. And then the other one was Circus America, which was a three ring circus with all the animals and wow. all the fanfare. Right. And I did that for, I don't know if it was six months or if it was a year. It was less than a year because then I went to Manhattan School of Music. Okay. Um, but at that point, I had done all the jazz camps. Right. I did uh, the Eastman School one. I did jazz monterey i did um the umass amherst one with max roach and sheila jordan ted dunbar all those guys yeah and um i knew that i had now understood the language of jazz like it was i'll never forget the day that it actually happened i I always tell people that you know learning how to play jazz for me was like riding a bike it was the one day when the training wheels came off and I was like, holy shit, I'm on. I'm sorry. Can I say <laughs> oh, of shit? Course, sorry, yeah. I've said it twice now. <laughs> so you're on the bike and you're like, oh, I don't need these wheels. And you can, you know, you're just, you're actually riding the bike. Right. And I was inside the garage playing along with a, uh, uh Miles Davis album kind of blue. Yeah. And all of a sudden I was like, Oh, Oh my God! I, it, there's to me there's something about jazz that is very elastic. Sure, yeah. There's an elasticity that I just picture in my head: a rubber band being, you know, stretched out, and in between there, there's time. There's notes in in the space of what you're hearing. There's notes that flow in between the rubber band. Yep. And uh, the rubber band signifies the bass to me. You know, mm-hmm. and the time on the on the ride symbol, mm-hmm. and and it's not it's not sort of like other music where it's more of a square. You're in a box, yeah, and there's jagged edges. This is like a very sort of elastic situation. I've I've always visualized it that way. And that day, I I felt it happen for the first time, and I was like, oh my god, I can't believe it's happening. <laughs> like the hi hats on two and four, this swing thing is actually it's doing that rubber band thing. Like yeah. it's working, yeah. you know? And from there I was hooked. Yeah. You know, and then I really got into Max Roach, Philly, Joe Jones, Elvin Jones, Tony Williams, Roy Haynes. Um, the list goes on and on and on and on. Yeah. Buddy Ridge, of course. I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I, I didn't really have a similar experience where it was like one moment where it, you know, it just happened. But you know, those of us who, who study jazz and, and spend time playing it, like, find that that feeling of elasticity um that's just it's 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 a flow it's a different kind of flow than any other kind of of drumming and once you kind of get hip to that flow and are able to feel it it is really intoxicating and i'm so glad you mentioned kind of blue because that's i mean that's just the one that's the blueprint for what jazz drumming is supposed to sound like and you can go from there like you said into tony and elvin and and all that but um, you know, there's just, there's no better example of how swing, you know, a bass and a ride cymbal together are supposed to feel. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I got uh, goosebumps, uh, thinking about that just now because <laughs> then it became a thing of, you know, one of my biggest problems has been, um, the distraction of other instruments. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was able to really sort of, uh, uh, mess around with other instruments and play them without much um, instruction. It just sort of became very natural to me. Like I could watch a trumpet player 
watch his mouth and, and understand the embouchure thing and then pick up a trumpet and be able to, you know, not, I couldn't play beautifully, but I could get the note to come out. And right. I understood the, the, the change in register just using, you know, the purse of your lip to yeah. do that. Same with the trombone, tuba, all that stuff. Very different, but by what there's something visual for me about watching. I can watch someone. I'm able to like really soak. It's like I'm a, a sponge. I can soak it in. I can't do it exactly how they do it, but I understand the concept and the right. feeling of it that they're emoting that feeling because it's all about that emotion. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something about Horacio Hernandez, El Negro, the drummer from Cuba. He's a wonderful yeah, drummer. Yeah, I, I interviewed him. Oh, did you? Yeah, he's man. He he got my attention um, when he was coming off tour with Santana. I was living in Paquito's house at that time, and he called and said, "Hey, do you mind if I leave some drums in your uh, your place?" And I said, "Not at all." And the tour manager called, and they're like, "You know, the truck's going to be there." Uh, and I was like, "Hmm, truck." So this semi truck pulls up. I swear to God, there was a drum set in every room, even in the bathrooms. Oh my God. Boxes of videotapes. I mean, it was amazing. And that just meant he was going to come over. Right. And that was like the greatest gift ever. This is the first interview I've ever talked about that, um, that experience. And he would come over. And he'd practice it down in the basement, and I would just sit and watch. And there were two drum sets set up across from each other so that I could sort of sit and play, too. But it was mainly me just watching him and learning. And I, something happened to me. That guy just blew my mind. Yeah. And it wasn't just the independence thing. That was awesome. But right. there was just this swagger that he had when he played mm-hmm. that i was like and he was just a nice he's such a nice guy he is um, yeah. and he's so musical and he's about the music right and that's what you know? i like the the flow of his playing um, yeah is is just uh, amazing going back to what you were talking about like the 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 flow the elasticity of of um oh yeah of jazz yeah absolutely and so i was like you know uh, i understand harmony became sort of a problem because i loved harmony so i'd sit at the piano and my teacher taught me how to play a chromatic scale so i learned how to play it in both hands and then i started like dissecting jazz standard tunes just learning them by ear you know Mm -hmm. playing them like blue bossa so what like all these tunes that were not that complicated as far as the form and the melody were concerned but to be able to play like those guys played over it right uh, joe henderson and you know that's a whole nother thing but something in me understood the language maybe more than i understood the language of the drums i understood what these guys were playing over the changes even though i had no idea what they were doing i understood it and i could sing it yeah like i could memorize the solos and sing them spit them back out to you every one solo right. bass piano guitar and it, i can't sing but you know the notes were there you knew it yeah and i understood i knew what was what was going to happen next the leading passing tones and all that stuff like made sense to me so, man, it became one of these things where I was like, oh, I know I need to practice the drums, but I want to sit at the piano and figure this out, you know. And somehow along the way, that ended up helping my drumming. And, of course, the drumming helped fuel the other stuff. And, right. You know, um, it, 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 I, I, I think that if there's anything um, 
unique or maybe not unique, but so, something that I hold dear to me with the way I play is that that when I play, I'm playing through the uh, through the music or for the music, um, and the actual notes and the the chord progressions are very much a part of what I'm playing on the drums. Mm, yeah. Some, sometimes it's more intentional than others um but it's always the melody it just matters so much to me yeah and it's like that in hamilton very much how like can you can you give me an example sure so there are moments when the the actors or actresses are on stage they're called actors um and they're singing um a certain phrase and where it's not quite written in the music i'll catch that phrase with a very subtle uh, hit of the bell of the cymbal or on the hi-hat, or I'll continue their phrase right. with tripl- triplets that will lead into another section. Um, it's it's interesting because I, I we did the album and I never listened to the record. I still haven't listened to the record completely because mm. I just uh, I, I prefer to basically put, um, you know, nails in my eyes and have to listen to myself play (laughs) but i i have a student um his name is felipe he's an incredible incredible young uh 13 year old prodigy uh drummer and um so i've been working with him on the show so it forced me to sit and listen to some of these songs and there's so much nuance in these uh in these parts like they didn't come with it mm-hmm. the, the parts came the way they were then we're able to inject what we feel the emotion that we feel and that's why people always say you know well, did you write the part well no we didn't write the part it was written but there are little things that we put in there yeah. that, that, that change it and also i think that spirit of each person continues to evolve the part i don't think a broadway show is done when they freeze it yeah, I think I think it continues to evolve because there's more still that needs to to evolve and change. Mm-hmm. You know, as you learn more the emotion and the flow of the show, the show to me is its absolute own entity. And I always tell my subs, say, look, if you're having a bad day, whatever's going on, you got to leave it at the door because the show will kick your ass if you come in and you don't give it exactly what it's been given or what the standard has been set. Right. If you drop drop below a certain thing, the show's going to kick your ass. <laughs> and it's happened to all of us. It's yeah. happened to me a bunch of times where I'm exhausted. I'm like, oh, my God, three hours long, 52 songs. All right. I better bring it. Yeah. I have to bring it because if you drop below – the actors feel it like we're really driving that bus, you know, yeah, yeah. and it's the most exposed instrument. I can't hide from it. Right. You know, um, right. there's a lot of like crazy things like Benny, Benny Reiner's our percussionist. He's an extraordinary percussionist, drummer, composer, producer, and um, he controls the click. And I'm in my own room. If you can visualize it, there's a little plexiglass window and I can see the back of his head and his back. And I can't see his foot hit this tiny little pedal that controls the click. So I have to, I have to be, we have to be emotionally so connected so that if he goes early or one of his subs goes early, I've got to go with him because the click is the boss. Mm -hmm. Then I've got to sort of rein it back or push it forward for the cast. It's very scary. So the responsibility is like, man, I, I can't tell you how many times, you know, we've had an instance where it's either gone in like or it misfires completely 
and it's Ableton. So you got to go to the next scene, you know, <laughs> he's got to forward through the next scene and we've got to figure out how to fill in the, the gaps. But, um, it, it's, it's, it's very scary because, uh, <laughs> you've got to guess where this guy's hitting and no one can see me. I can barely see the conductor. We have TVs. That's what we rely on. Right. But, uh, you know, so you're in a place where you have to be so focused that, you can't let one thing slip by you. Right. You just can't. You can't phone that shit in. You just right. can't. Every night, you've got to bring it. I liked what you were saying about about um, each part evolving. Um, and you know, obviously, the the actors do that, and and the the show evolves, especially if actors get replaced or whatever. Exactly. Um, yeah. But I, I, you know, I've I've played a bunch of musicals. Um, never for nearly as long as you've been doing Hamilton, but. You know, over the course of a show, over the course of a run, you get you get deeper and deeper into the nuances of your part and how it relates to everything else that's going on. Um, and it 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 sounds like you're still discovering that stuff. And and not only do you discover it, but then you come to rely on it as uh, part of like what keeps you engaged in in the show. Yeah, absolutely. That's so true. And it becomes sort of the footprint of, of the, of the, of that moment or of that song or that sequence. Right. Um, there's, yeah, it, it's continual, you know, and, and I, people ask a lot of times, well, don't you get bored playing the same songs over and over again? I mean, we're four and a half years now, um, over a thousand shows or whatever. Don't you get sick of it? And I say, always say, I, I, I'll never be good enough to get sick of that because the music is it's on, it was written and arranged on such a high level that every time I go there, and I think most of the musicians, all of the musicians in the pit would tell you the same thing that every time you go in there, it's almost like you're getting, um, baptized (laughs) again. (laughs) It's like, okay, we're going to start over again because you could definitely do that better Mm. or you could listen to that or you could play with him a little better. Oh, there's another conductor. He's not conducting it the same way that guy conducted it, but you've got to respect the way he's conducting it. So you figure out, find a way to meet in the middle and guide because one goes down. We all go down. That's the mentality, you know? And, and what keeps you from getting bored is just the fact that like the, you know, your drumming responsibilities are the beginning (laughs) of the shit you have to worry about, you know, like exactly. on, on a musical, you get your drum part down and you kind of, you know, uh, lock it in your mind. Like this is how this drum part needs to be played or whatever. But on any given night, um, there's, there's, uh, you know, emotional moments or like you said, little, little glitches, um, that if, if your drum part isn't solid, like you can't worry about your drum part, you have to have your head screwed on and your eyes open and your heart open and your ears open to just, you know, be open to whatever's going to happen that night for better or for worse. Hey man. And let me tell you just this past week, um, on the uh, uh, was it Sunday? Sunday or Saturday? We had a woman that went into a diabetic seizure. Oh man! And we had, and they just stopped the show. Ooh. And and this is not this is the second time. The first time someone had a stroke, and you hear in the in the headphones, and we're stopping, and everyone stops. Wow! And they say, ladies and gentlemen, we're having a medical emergency. Blah blah blah. And they handle it super swiftly. That's uh-huh. you have these people work so incredibly that way. So we had that. I think it was Friday, not Saturday. We had that Friday. Then Sunday, six songs before the end of the of the second show, 
on Sunday, my hi hat stand broke. Oh. Like it's it's uh, uh, held together. Like the paddle is connected to the device that moves the thing up and down the spring mm-hmm. by a, a very sturdy piece of felt. But you know, I'm I'm there playing. I have six subs, you know, and and it's getting it gets rubbed with their the their toes mm-hmm. on their shoes. And I'd never look at it. Right. There was, there was a great lesson. You know, <laughs> I never look at that stuff to keep up on it. And all of a sudden I just, I'm playing the hi-hat. It's supposed to be nice and tight. It was like, shh, shh. <laughs> I was like, look at I'm like, I can't figure out. I even pulled the thing off. I'm like, what the hell? Right. I couldn't figure it out, you know? And then I looked down for whatever reason, like way too late. I looked down and that thing had frayed completely until it finally just went and the pedal was just flat. There was, oh, there was no, it was connected to anything. So I had to get on the little mic I have. And I said, you know, as I'm playing, I'm like trying to get the words out. Cause I can't do the, uh, Levon Helm sing and play thing. Right. As beautifully as he does. I could barely say, help me, you know, <laughs> and, and or you just say it in time. Like my hi hat is <laughs> fucked. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. What, what, I probably was somewhere in there, which is pretty pathetic. But yeah, so I got in the thing and whatever it took was I just said, I need help. Oh. And uh, and the MD calls and the guy came in and I'm playing. And I'm like, how do you switch a hi-hat that's taped down? It's taped. The actual foot part is taped so it doesn't get moved around. How do you switch that while you're playing a tune? The hi-hat became... Another lesson, you know how much we rely on the hi-hat or how important that hi-hat is for us? I'm thinking about it now. Yeah, I tell people... <laughs> I, I got to check drum, my hi-hat right fucking now. <laughs> yeah, the, the bass drum and the snare drum are like the meat and potatoes, right? Yeah. But when you're working on a, on a show that's, you know, the music is through composed or whatever, the hi-hat, especially in this show, it's like hip-hop show, the hi-hat is absolutely one of the most important parts that setup yeah and so it's gone like there i couldn't even tighten it i wow. use uh, 17 inch hi-hats wow so you know i i couldn't tighten it to for whatever reason if i tightened it the bottom part would go down so it wasn't tightening up right so he's in there trying to help me and i'm playing and trying to talk to him telling him to protect his ears because it's loud you know in the room it's like a rock show right and there was finally a moment of break to be able to actually pull the hi-hat out, completely out, rip it out from the tape and everything, fly the new one in. And we just took the, 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 the actual rod itself, the upper part of the hi-hat and just put it. It was the same. So iron Cobra, um, uh, right. which is phenomenal, but it, uh, this thing had just busted. So, right. and man, those have two legs and then they have like a little thing underneath the, the board, the footboard that comes out to help it from falling over. Right. It's only two legs. Well, that thing was like not in the right position and you had to go underneath the pedal to unscrew it. So it, the hi-hat just was like this oh. leaning on, on the, on the DTX. I'm like, Oh, I don't know what to do. So I'm playing, I'm holding it literally with my elbow up like this. Cause the hi-hats are that big and playing the, the groove with one hand. <laughs> And <laughs> it was just like, all right, I understand. I know I have to fix something or be more aware. Whatever it was, I was like, all right, I got you. Right, you got right. one point and I got zero, you know. <laughs> so. Oh, man. But we got through it. And and was the lady with the diabetic seizure okay? 
you know, we never found out. Oh man. Uh, certainly prayed that she was, but yeah, yeah, I don't know. So in a situation like that, I mean, you, you know, not just you, but like everybody involved in the show and everybody in the audience, like after that crisis is dealt with, like yeah. the show goes back on and you're like, okay, where were we emotionally? <laughs> oh my God. So, so good thing you said that. So like f- five or eight minutes went by. No, it must've been 10 minutes. Cause we got overtime, which is the only good thing about that whole thing is that you actually get paid, but I'd actually rather not get paid than have that ever happen to anyone. You right, know? Right. Uh, but so when we came back in, it took me about five minutes to recuperate that intensity. We mm-hmm. were doing room where it happens, which mm-hmm. is a very intricate tune because there's brushes, sticks involved and putting things down and, and you're in that moment. And if that gets broken, all of a sudden we just had intermission. Now we're into the third or fourth song and boom, this happens. We're out for 10 minutes, let's say. Right. Now we're back in. But we started the tune again from the top because there was nowhere in Ableton to really bring it in. It wouldn't have made sense to bring it in where they stopped. So we just started it again. And I think we were eight measures out when it happened. So, But man, it took me five minutes to get back in the game. That's like two songs. Yeah. And and I was like, that can't happken again. Right. I need to be in it right away. Mm-hmm. Get find it and get back in it right away. Yeah. And being a studio guy, I love working in the studio. I've done a lot of studio stuff. Uh, I, I learned, um, that you, when there's a problem, you have to fix it right away. John Faddis once told me I was ninth grade or 10th grade. He said he was in the studio recording a soundtrack for a Clint Eastwood movie. And he could tell that the note was sharp and he didn't fix it fast enough. And the guy had to cut and say, someone's sharp. Like, mm. you know, the guy knew that it was sharp and no one wanted to take, take the response. He didn't want it. No one wanted to take responsibility, I think for it, but he finally said it was me, you know, whatever. And it went to happen again and he fixed it right away and right. he learned he's like but 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 that's quick learning yeah. like to take that and fix it instantly is and, and so to me i was like i need to do that yeah. when you're in the studio you got to fix it right away cuz time is money right yeah and i think that's that's the case in in jazz in general too because more more than most other forms of music i think it really forces you to be in the moment um, That's right, and and it's like it's interesting. You uh, you you use the imagery of like you know a rubber band or that that elasticity um, for for better or for worse. The imagery that comes to me when I think about jazz is um, just kind of being on the edge of <laughs> not a knife's edge, but like riding a bike. You know, like you could fall either way at any yeah. time. And, and if, you know, to, to stay upright, to keep going, to keep forward momentum going, it's just this constant balancing act between, you know, yourself, all your limbs and, uh, you know, the bassist and, and the soloist and where that solo is going and how you're going to interact with it. It's just this constant check-in, like your brain is like a computer doing a thousand check-ins a second. Um, and, and I think it really, uh, trains you to be able to react quickly, to fix things quickly, to get back in the moment quickly. Yeah, I, I, man, you, you saying that actually just brought some clarity to a question that that I've been asked before. Like, you know, what sets us all apart, uh, drummers on Broadway, or or what you know can make the difference between you or someone else in a session, or what do you think is you know what what has attracted uh, these guys to want to use you for the show, or blah blah blah. 
And I just realized just now as you're saying that is that, you know, I, I've always known that, you know, I play each show like it's going to be the last one I ever play. Hmm. And um, that stems from a life, a life uh, uh, moment, something that happened to me in my life, you know, that changed my life, altered my life forever. Mm-hmm. And so it, it made me f- more grateful for all the things around me. But I realized that I live on the edge when I play. So every show is not going to be exactly the same mm-hmm. because it's such an emotional experience for me. And in this show and any other show that I've done with Lynn and with Alex uh, Lackamore, that there is that jazz sensibility to it where they allow that interplay and they allow uh, some some fluctuation of things based on emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, every time I play, I, I go in there and I give it a million percent. Um, <clears throat> and sometimes I'm living on the edge and sometimes it's it, it I fall miserably <laughs> and and other times I, I prosper you know and wonderful things happen or the feel of it just it just feels like we're sitting on top of these notes and we're just like it's it's that special moment you yeah. know but it's being on the edge I think that's the thing with me is I sort of just man I walk in and and it's like being very edgy not feeling edgy but you know, on the edge, uh, musically, like, man, this is do or die, you know? Right. Right. And it's, you know, you, you talk about kind of giving a a million percent every show. Um, and I, I, I don't doubt that, but, but just from my own experience, I know that what you're capable on of giving on a given day is different the next day. Absolutely. So I, you know, whatever, whatever gig you have or whatever, you know, um, whatever kind of musical performance you do, I, I, I'm, I'm just kind of formulating this idea now as you're talking. Like our our goal shouldn't be a, a certain standard. Our goal shouldn't be a certain result standard. It should be a certain effort standard. Like I'm going to give everything yeah. I'm capable of giving today, and tomorrow exactly. I might not be as as capable of giving as much. Um, but That's uh, right. I, I hear what you're saying about like you you go into that show just loaded for bear like i'm i can't hold anything back or this show is going to eat me <laughs> yeah yeah or or the fact that you know that principle sometimes doesn't in a show like this doesn't quite work mm-hmm. where you know yesterday i was able to give more today i may not be able to give as much although that should be the mindset mm-hmm. it, it won't that won't work here hmm. you have to you have to think to yourself you know what that's I actually don't even think about it anymore. I don't I don't know that I ever did. I just you walk in and you play the show. I was on tour with the Book of Mormon, right. first national tour. And I get a phone call from Alex Lackamore and he says Listen, uh, there's a show. We don't really know much about it right now. The music's killing. I, lo- I want you to, to, to play it, but, you know, you have a family. My wife at that time was pregnant with our third child, and I had two boys that she was basically taking care of by herself uh, while I was on tour. So you get this call to, to bring you home, reunite you with your family, which is the greatest thing in the world. That's the greatest gift you could ever be given. Um 
And the sense of responsibility and gratitude that you would have for someone that would give you the opportunity to be with your family, forget the show for a minute, Mm -hmm. but just to be in the same space with them because I was literally away from them for two years. I got to go home two 24-hour leaves from the tour and and once to have uh, my daughter. And then I went back on tour again. Wow. And, and, you know, these are the things I think that, that a lot of folks don't realize. Uh, but to finish the point with that, um, how could you go and not give a million percent, uh, every single time and have that gratitude for someone that's just given you the greatest gift ever to watch your kids grow again when you're watching them through YouTube or sorry, uh, FaceTime or whatever, which is great too. But so you know, it's a different perspective, uh, for me with regard to that. And, you know, I make it a point to send a text of gratitude and say, Hey man, I, I know we're four years into this thing, but I, I, I'm so thankful, not just because the show is what it is and because I have a way to support my family, but because you actually brought me back together with them, you know, and those things never, never get lost on me, you know, and, and that fuels me to get in there every day and, and, no matter what I'm feeling, just yeah. to, to, to play. And e- listen, you want to play it anyway, because it's such, if you get a chance to go in there and see how this thing works, I, I encourage you to come and check it out. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like, a, it's, it's really an exhilarating thing to, to, cause you feel like you're hearing something that you, in the audience, you'd never hear, hearing the click, hearing the conductor talk. There's, there's something very special about that, yeah. you know? Um, and, uh, you know, Steve Smith sat in the pit with me for the entire show. He and his no wife. No shit. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, he even he talks about, you know, that it, it's a lot of work. And, and you know, you can see how much you work. And there's no break, man. It's like you finish one song, on to the next song. And in that whole three hours, I have – there's an intermission. So let's say it's 10 minutes. Uh, above the 10 minutes, uh, we have – because uh, we sort of lose five minutes after, you know, between the time we f- f- uh, finish act one, the five minutes goes by like that before you actually go and start using your, your break, which mm-hmm. is at that point, 10 minutes left. Then you go in and prep again, get your music ready. Um, but essentially, uh, you don't have that much time to prepare for it. And you're, I have total 11 minutes and I think it's eight seconds in three hours free. Wow. And I have to run to the bathroom in one song and run back to be able to catch a cymbal swell. Yeah. Oof. You know, our bass player doesn't get a break at all. He's playing the entire show. Jesus. So he has to go to the bathroom beforehand. Right. Um, so it's, it, there's, you want to play that show uh, and you want to give it all because it's such fun music and, and it's challenging. It's hard. Yeah. You know, I've never felt like, oh man, I nailed that. I've never felt that. <laughs> not, not one time. Really? And, and I do, no way. I felt <laughs> good. Like, wow, that was, that was really good. And to, to add a side note to that, I'm surrounded by people far better than I'll ever be uh, musically. And humanly, there's some wonderful people in that pit, but man, some of the best players, like yeah. our, our rhythm section is untouchable. Yeah. You know, the, the bass player, Richard Hammond has played with, recorded with everyone. He's from New Zealand. He's one of the baddest bass players I've ever heard in my life. He's so good. Uh, Robin Makatanga is the guitar player, but, you know, underrated because not everyone knows who he is, 
but he is one of the most important guitarists I believe of our time. He's mm. just really that heavy. Wow. Um, and the string players are incredible. Our MD and, and associate, uh, and Benny on percussion is just, you know, he's doing, so Benny not only plays percussion, he plays piano at the same time. He triggers Ableton. Uh, that's, those are his duties at the show, but then he's also producing, um, stuff for netflix he's done a bunch of movie soundtracks i mean he and he's a kid and he's just so freaking talented you know i I always kid with him and say one day i'm gonna get here and you're not gonna be here anymore i'm gonna be so sad (laughs) because his star is like rising every day it's like it's like the scene in uh in uh goodwill hunting when ben affleck says like you know the day i look forward to the most is the day i knock on your door and you're gone yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it happens yeah 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 um so you mentioned uh being on tour with with the book of mormon and um i mean one of the things i wanted to ask you about is is just the the difference you you kind of alluded to it in terms of being away so much but um in in terms of you know your your musical mindset and just the the day in day out of doing a show um can you talk about some of the differences of being on tour with a show like the book of mormon or you know a large scale show like that and staying home on on broadway um i would imagine that you know touring is difficult in more difficult in most ways but um what uh, what did, what did those two roles kind of bring to your life well it's a great question touring is is really hard and i'm gonna get right to the point (laughs) at some point in the tour um i had uh an infected uh tooth that had to come out so i went to the dentist and i was i thought it was going to be a simple procedure i was there for like eight hours they had to actually cut a piece of the bone out i had eight stitches in there and I went that night, played a show, and there was, like, literally blood coming out. You know, when you're playing, you clench your mouth. Yeah. It's awful. Awful. Fast forward maybe four months later, uh, we ended up in Albany. My brother was living at the time. And I wasn't feeling so good. Something wasn't right, you know. And uh, and the the schedule, basically, when you're on tour, I'm going to jump around a little. The schedule is Monday's a travel day. Uh, can be a load-in day f- for us musicians. It is a setup day at, in the evening hours for for the crew. Mm-hmm. But Tuesday early morning is load-in, and you have a performance at night. So for that show, there were two drum sets. One that had to go in the rehearsal room because you pick up seven or six uh, local musicians, and then a drum set that went in the pit, which is the one you use when you play the show. So. Um, I had to get there. I, I like to do it the night before. So Monday night, I was like, I'm just going to go and set up rehearsal so I don't have to like get up way early and set up and make people wait, you know. So I did it uh, on the Mondays. So there's really no rest. You know, you're setting up. So I was feeling already kind of crappy at that time. And I did the rehearsal, which is uh, five hours long. And uh, you have to basically run the show twice with these locals. Yeah. Take a break. There's a lot of breaks in there, but you still you go through the music. It's a lot. And then you have set up in the pit. Then you have a sound check. So um, then you have a little break and then you come and you play your first show that day. Same day, Tuesday. And it's usually a seven o'clock show. So uh, I think it was 
right after the uh, sound check, I collapsed and they had to take me to the hospital and uh, get admitted to the hospital and they're taking my vitals. And before I knew it, I'd been there, you know, probably like an hour and a half. And I'm like, man, I've got to get to the gig. I got to prepare for the gig. So I, I had to sign a paper and I had to pull out the thing from my arm because wow. when you're in the hospital, you know, they want you to stay there. If you don't stay, you have to sign a release because they're, they're not responsible. They don't want to be responsible. So, um, and I pulled it out, got to the show. My brother helped me and, um, I was in a lot of pain and, uh, finished the show and, I collapsed again. And so he had to carry me to the car and drive me to the emergency room. And I was there all night and all the way up till five the next day. And that night I had an eight o'clock show. Oh, um, God. So they discovered I had eight kidney stones and I had diverticulitis and diverticulosis, which is a situation with your large intestine where you have these little hereditary thing. You have these little pockets and you can't eat nuts. You can't eat seeds of any kind or popcorn. And I had an infection and, and it was bad. So after learning that I had, um, these kidney stones when you're on tour, I can't imagine it's, it's probably <laughs> you pay for your, your sins or you're paying for something <laughs> for a whole tour with eight kidney stones, because I passed my last one when I was, on Broadway at Hamilton. Whoa. My first, my first month on Broadway. That was the last. So, um, so there's, there's no breaks if you're puking. I mean, there was a time deaf and legally deaf in my left ear. So I only hear out of my right ear. Hmm. So there was, uh, I had a, uh, uh, some sort of throat infection or I had like a cold, really bad cold, high fever. I had to go in and play the show. I couldn't hear anything. This ear was infected and clogged up. Mm. I couldn't hear shit, but I could see, I controlled the click for that show. So I could see the little light on the Roland, uh, multi 12. Uh, and I was watching the bass player and I made it through that show, man. It was a miracle that I made it through that show, but I was, I had a fever, you know, um, but you, you don't take breaks. You can't when you're on tour, you're on tour. You don't get subs unless there's like a death or you're having a kid or something like that. Right. And, um, so, you know, I, I, I don't think we ever stop paying dues. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this mentality like, oh, I paid my dues. I don't think so. I don't think we ever stop paying them. I think we continue to pay dues uh, if we want to continue to elevate in, in the industry. Mm-hmm. And, and that could be in, on, on, uh, on any level that you're paying a due, mm-hmm. you know, and it could be suffering through whatever, but that's part of what we go through. And I, I've always believed in karma. I believe in that stuff. I think it's like, look, you, you, you want to be with your family, but on top of that, you're being given a gift to not only be with them, but there's a show that you're going to do. And that show on top of that happens to be a really great show and it's going to do quite well. So I'll take whatever you give me and I'll take (laughs) it with, I'll take it with a smile. Right. Right. Um, so aside from like, you know, the, the lack of a safety net on the road and just having to play through whatever, um, you know, we, we talked about, you know, finding, finding nuances in your part and, and really like settling into, um, the, the flow of a show. How were were you able to do that on a traveling show? Because the oh, product has to be yeah. the same, right? I mean, you want Absolutely. ultimately the product to be as if you were sitting down, posted up in New York, 
but yes. you're in buses and trucks. So <laughs> Yeah, and that was an incredibly uh, humbling experience for me, too, because at that point, you know, I, my Broadway thing started when I was 19. I subbed for uh, Eli Fountain on Jelly's Last Jam. It's playing percussion and drums. But that was the only time I ever subbed on a Broadway show. Mm-hmm. So this was, this was uh, you know, the opportunity to, to play a part by that someone I respect a great deal had written. And his name is Sean McDaniel. He's, he's a wonderful drummer, and uh, he's a drummer at Frozen now, but before that he was a drummer at uh, Book of Mormon. And he created those parts. He, he programmed all that stuff. So I had a very limited amount of time to learn it and to get it the way he plays it. And I wanted to honor that, um, and so I spent a lot of time in doing that. So once you have as much of their thing figured out, you know, the part that they play so that it sounds like it is in New York because you can't go in there and play totally different. It has to be, like you said, it has to have the same, uh, fingerprint yeah. uh, as, as the original one, you know? And, um, but you eventually you start, once you've learned that and you paid respect to that, you, you little emotional things just start naturally happening and those are good things. I think they're honest things as long as they don't interfere with the show and they're not too different from what is being done in New York. There are little liberties here and there that you can take. And if it's not good, the conductor will tell you, hey, that's not good. Don't do that. Right. And that, that sounds what ha- like what happens in the normal course of a show when you're just sitting down in one theater. But you're, you're saying that the fact that you were on the road traveling, dealing with rehearsal, dealing with you know all the shit that you deal with on the road didn't prevent – uh, those moment, those moments, and that nuance from from taking shape. No, not at all. Yeah. I think there's just so much music that was given to me. You know, the the, it, the finished product product was so beautiful, and there's so much there that I mean, it took me that long to actually really be able to execute it properly. You yeah. know, and then to be, and then little by little, little things would sneak in here and there. But um, you know, this is someone's life's work that they put into it, and. Uh, I can't just come in in one year and or two years and nail what they took. You know, it's taken them five years to create. Right. So, so there's that sort of uh, uh, understanding that you know it's like you're gonna work through it and you'll get through it. And but everyone's going through that. Everyone on that, you know, because those the people that are traveling are folks that want a Broadway show, but you know for whatever reason it just hasn't happened yet. Right. Uh, or they're on hiatus or who knows what. And so. Everyone sort of goes through the same trials and tribulations, except each instrument is a little bit different, mm-hmm. you know, and each person playing that instrument comes with a different set of complexities to their personality. That's the other thing. You learn about life maybe more than you do about music. Right, because, I mean, yeah, on the road, you're you're living together. You're doing life. And in, yeah, man. in I- New York, you see each other at the show, but you don't live together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, you cram a bunch of actors and musicians and crew in a bus or a plane, you know, it can, it can get difficult, but let me tell you, there, there was no greater substitute or stand in for my family than there were of those, that crew and that band. And those people were amazing. Yeah. Uh, and you never get that. I mean, you, you get some, but you don't always get everyone was so supportive and it was a wonderful experience uh, that I'll never forget. Really. It was great. You know, I, I never thought about it that way because you know, my, my assumption is that the, uh, the, the like I said, the pain in the ass of the road m- might get in the way of, you know, kind of the emotional connectivity of the show. 
but you're you're saying you know the fact that you were on the road together you were doing life together like this is this is my family this is my crew so when you totally. take that on stage even if it's your first night in a new theater like yeah. you're connected you're in it together absolutely yeah yeah and and, and i think that's kind of a, an anomaly i don't think it it exists that much but in this moment in time it it worked mm-hmm. and the people and you know there's always little things here and there on that tour i was sort of the comedian you know i've always uh, been able to make people laugh when, you know, there's a moment of uh, anxiety or, you know, and yeah. it could be just a stupid little thing, but I was sort of the comic relief at that point. And, uh, and, and it was just as rewarding for me in a sense, you know, right. but, um, but yeah, it's, it's not easy uh, to, to, to deal with being on the road, but you learn about life. You learn about setting an alarm, and then two more alarms. Cause I just, I never want to make people wait. Yeah. You know, I never want to make anyone be on a bus. We're like, where the fuck is this dude? You know, it's like, yeah. we're supposed to be at the airport. Mm-hmm. I don't fuck around with that, you know, for me. But then again, I'm older now and I've been through a bunch more and uh, I know that I just want to be calm and relaxed. And if that means I have to pack the night before and make sure I'm up two hours before. Yeah. So be it. Yep. And I'm down the first one down there ready to go. Mm-hmm. Smile on my face, no complaining. Yeah, I'm I'm the yeah. same way. Maybe not necessarily with a smile on my face, but you know, <laughs> I. <laughs> I think if I was sick, I didn't have a smile. On my right, face, but right. By and large, it was nothing to be uh, too upset about. No, but regardless of what your gig is, you know, there's there's so little that's in our control, really. You know, um, uh, but that's that's one of the things that is in our control, like whether or not you're fucking on time. You know, and sometimes even that's not in your control. But but uh, that's right. I, I just think of that as one of the few things that I can actually control. <laughs> so I'm going to get that part right. <laughs> yeah, and it makes people listen. It makes people want to work with you. Yeah. At the end of the day, you know, you have your 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 way you present yourself is sort of your calling card. You know, and and it's your life credit as people you know want to continue to work with you and. Uh, we have moments where we fall and we learn from them, but to, to maintain a, a humble, uh, you know, attitude and just get along with people is you're going to work forever if you're, yeah. if you're not an asshole. You yeah. Know, that's sort of the bottom line. And I, I would imagine that, that one of the, you know, one of the reasons that um, Lynn and the production team have come to depend on you and value you so much is what you've been talking about, all the shit that you went through to deliver um, and to hold up your end and meet your responsibility as the drummer for whatever show you were on, um, yeah. it, you know, in addition to your, your musical sensibility and all that, they knew they were getting someone dependable who was just like ride or die for them and the show. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and again, you know, the fact that they're taking stock in you is, it's a great honor and a great gift. So, you know, the very least you can do is bring every single thing that you have every single time that you play. Um, and, and be prepared and there's just look there's just so much to be thankful for mm-hmm. I mean she, there's nothing to be pissed about <laughs> there just isn't you know like for me I got to be with my family again right you know that's, that's something I don't I'll never forget that you know and so every day of my life I think about that yeah. and it helps me to deal with the moments that might be difficult you know like stupid things like oh the train's later or oh, you know there's traffic on the bridge or whatever but there are people that are dealing with a lot worse than that. So, yeah. 
This episode is brought to you by DrumSellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at DrumSellers.com. It's not very often that we do deep dives on gear on this show, but um, yeah. about uh, a year or so ago, I interviewed uh, Jake Wood, who uh, I believe he still is, the percussionist for, for the traveling production of, yes. of Hamilton. Um, yes. And he mentioned that uh, the the drummer for that show, and I assume uh, you, uh, use, I don't know, six or seven or eight different snare drums. <laughs> yeah, the book calls for five, okay. five snare drums. Cool. And uh, yeah, that, that, that everyone, all the drummers on the tours and stuff mimic the kit that I have uh, on Broadway. They Some of them set it up a little differently because uh, they're just smarter than I am. <laughs> um, I got used to it, so. But since, uh, you know, I think snare tone is kind of at the front of everyone's mind uh, lately in, in the drumming world, and, and it's certainly more and more in my mind. Um, so would you mind just taking us through uh, the snare sounds and the, the drums and the, the tunings and the setups that you're using? Yeah, I'm a, a snare whore. Take, <laughs> take this thing and just swivel it so you can see what I'm talking about. Oh, wow, yeah. Oh, my God. There, There's... there's you, I'm Over looking at 50 snare drums here. Oh, like, and, and there's, there's more than that. So I don't know if you, you can need more speak. shelving, dude. I know. <laughs> right. So snare drums to me are, um, I think they're like, if you're a saxophone player, you know, having a good mouthpiece, yeah. a good read are like everything. Yeah. And to me, the snare drum is the voice. It's like the center of the entire drum set. Everything shoots off of the snare drum, you yeah. know, because if that's like your, your solar plex, you know, cause it's right there. Yeah. Um, this shows very unique in the sense that we have a, a sort of a pre-civil war drum. Um, sonar made me, uh, a one, it's like a 16 by 16, that sort of modified customized drum, but it has that, that, tonal sensibility so a lot of research went into that mm-hmm. you know I, I researched what that sound would be like um and then, but then also like a, like a field drum a field drum exactly yeah. yeah and um there's something because i'm deaf in my left ear um i have to be able to feel the sound i don't know if that makes sense but i have to be able to feel what i'm hearing with this yeah i have to this is my left ear yeah, or right, this. Right, right. So, uh, uh, side note, uh, when I went to Zildjian, um, Paul Francis uh, was designing with me the uh, new symbols that I use. That they're, they're big. I use, you know, 25 and a half inch ride symbol. Holy shit. That, that, and he was so amazing to understand right away that, look, he's kid's deaf. This guy is deaf in his left ear. So, and I'd said, you know, I have feel everything i hear everything through touch mm-hmm. so like these headphones for instance I, I use these exclusively because i have i can feel the metronome on the cartilage of my ear hmm. so if you go like this on your cartilage it's like a speaker cone yeah yeah so uh, even though i'm deaf in that ear you i can feel the pulse i can't hear it but i can feel it right so he was so incredible to understand the concept that when he unveiled the symbols that he made, he said, you should be able to hear 
this with your hand. So mm-hmm. to me, it has to feel the way it sounds mm-hmm. and vice versa. Yeah. So the, the, the uh, field drum has a particular feel to it. There's something to it. If you close your eyes, you know, um, you can actually feel in a sense what it might have felt like for someone like that to play it with. And I use larger sticks to, to do the, the sequences that I use on that, on that drum for the show. Mm-hmm. So then there's the contrast of that and the drum in the center. The drum in the center is the sort of utility drum because we're using it for every song. Mm-hmm. Right. And that by and large is an eight inch deep drum because I have to be able to pull off, um, a deep sound, but also have some crack to it. But yeah. the depth of it is what matters to me. Um, in contrast to that, there's a piccolo snare drum, which is cranked. And that one has to be able to do all of the typical things that a piccolo snare drum does in, in these idioms of music that we're, right. we're playing. Are these all sonar drums you're talking about? or Everything is sonar. Okay, cool. And in, in contrast to that, there's a popcorn snare drum, which is really cranked for those moments when we need to have that aesthetic, you know, uh, but everything was so thoughtfully, uh, arranged musically that it makes sense. Like when you hear it, you're like, yeah, that's exactly what should be there, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, you know, there's, I'll have to send it to you privately, but Dave Grohl came, uh, down to the pit and there's a cool video of him playing and he's just like, wow, it's a lot of fucking snare drums, <laughs> but, but he starts playing them. He's like, yeah, you know, it makes sense. You know, when, when, when you think about what you're doing, cause you're telling a story and yeah. these instruments are vehicles, uh, you know, the voice of that particular moment, like mm-hmm. you had said earlier, you know, they, they represent sort of a, a, a motif or a moment or a voice in, in that show. And the snare drum is sort of like a very important narrator throughout the show. Hmm. And cause you hear that, that, da, 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 that's the field drum. And that's pretty much the, signature stamp of that show yeah you know um so it's and you know it's funny because that drums the drum set for this show is what was left over of the drum set i used for bring it on okay so there was electronics where the 10 or uh, 8 or 10 inch tom would go traditionally then there's a 12 inch tom uh where that would typically go then there's two floor toms and um then all the snare drums are to the left and one crash and the hi-hats are on the left, but everything else is on the right. So it, that drum kit already existed and it was now easy for me to sort of get comfortable on that because there's a lot of DNA from that show in this show, mm-hmm. just like there's a lot of in the Heights in this as well. Yeah. Um, you know, if you, if you've really listened to it, there's, you could tell these, you know, that this is Lynn and Alex having worked together on this thing. So, right. Right. Um, but yeah, the, the snare drums are very, very important to me. Okay, so there's the there's the field drum, there's the main drum, the piccolo, the popcorn, and what was the fifth one? Uh, main snare drum, piccolo, popcorn, and field drum. That's four. Oh, did I miss one? Oh, sorry. And then there's the low drum. Oh, okay. there's the low drum which has the big fat snare thing on it. Oh, gotcha. Which is for like that sexy, you know, slow shit that we do. Right. And has that, you know, that really sort of I don't know. I don't even know what you would call it, but they use it a lot in in uh, popular music now. Yeah. You know, it's like just a real low snare drum, and that one sits. And that again is another deep drum. 
Right. Because it has that aesthetic to it right. where you hear it and you're like, oh, yeah, that's a big, that's got to be a big drum. <laughs> you know? And it's tuned really low. Snares are real loose on it. And on top of it, it has a big fat snare thing on it. Oof. Jeez. So it's like it's a it's a beast, yeah. So in figuring out these snare sounds and and choosing these drums, um, were there uh, like what was the process of that? What did did Lynn or the musical director uh, have specific sounds or specific like tracks in mind that they were like we want this snare sound for this song or whatever? Yeah, I think Alex Lackamore was the one that sort of guided those uh the actual references you know a lot of d'angelo references hmm. for for grooves and the sounds and um so yeah it was very thoughtfully placed on the on the sheet of music you know it was like on the paper it was like everything was really thought uh thoughtfully prepared but that's half the battle now the other half is being able to execute that without just trying to imitate a pattern mm-hmm. now you actually have to go if you haven't checked it out now you got to go live in that world right and really understand what quest love was doing or whoever the drummer was on that particular recording and that's when it gets interesting because mm-hmm. that's when you check yourself and you're like uh, just imitating or you know am i just taking something and because you know it's like a signature we can all copy a signature but to really do it right you got to spend hours yeah. learning that shit. Yeah. And and it's no different with these some of these uh, styles of music. You really got to get deep because there's something about the time between the hi-hat, the bass room, and the snare drum where, where that person's breathing or how they're feeling, that emotion. Mm-hmm. That That's where the secret is. Yeah. It's in the little things. It's not in the big things. That shit is obvious. It's in the little moments, the spaces between all those notes. That to right. me makes up music in general. And it's, yeah, it's so interesting how like, you know, emotional content or the energy that a person brings to an instrument affects the sound of the instrument. It's beyond yep. tuning. It's beyond technique. So you can, you can find the tuning, you can find the right instrument, you can find the right sound, you can, you know, learn the pattern or whatever. But then, like you said, like the super challenging third level of it is to just say like, can I emulate the energy that quest love brings <laughs> to the <laughs> to whatever you know or whatever the example is you know just like yeah imitating someone's energy not just their sound yeah it's it's deep man because like, yeah. there there's there's you know this is someone's personality right it's not just a moment in time where they record and like oh i think i'm gonna do it like this that's years of stuff that they're putting into that moment that you don't know what it is right you keep but but you can figure it out if you take the time to study that person a little bit more than just taking a pattern writing it out and then just trying to figure it out yeah you know that's and the like easy said, way to do it you said you're a visual learner just like watching how somebody moves um, totally you know anytime I'm, I'm trying to emulate like a you know the vibe or the style of a certain drummer i, I really try and think about how they move behind the kit you know, because absolutely. In addition to their stroke and their grip and whatever, like every drummer just has kind of a, a movement. <laughs> There's a the, dance. That's what I call the swagger. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Horacio had his swagger. You know, um, uh, Elvin had his swagger. Mm-hmm. Tony Williams. I mean, Steve Gadd. These guys, they have them. Brian Blade. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's right there. It's so obvious. Ralph Peterson. Like some of these guys that just are so beautiful when they play. Jeff Tane Watts is another one. Uh-huh. And a lot of it's in their eyes too. Hmm. 
You know, there's there, there's something that happens, man, when they're playing it in their eyes. It's no different than having a, a special and intimate moment with someone that you love. Yeah. Yeah. But again, that's, you know, that's even deeper down, there, down <laughs> right on that trail, you know, but there is a, a thing about watching that visual is, is so cool. And that's why we were fans of having people, you know, that are skin us up for us, come and sit and watch so they can see that, feel it. And then they can sort of apply that, you know, right, to what they do. Right, right. You know, check out the videos. Here's a video. This is how I did that choreography to put this down or get to that drum. When I'm all the way over here, I've got to come all the way over here, flip the page. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. So yeah. not having the visual, you know, it would be very, very difficult, nearly impossible to, yeah. to pull off. Yeah, yeah. Um, have you uh, started to think? think about or dream about what may come after Hamilton or are you just on this train and you're going to ride it till the wheels come off? <laughs> well, I, I will uh, ride it until, you know, uh, the wheels come off, I yeah. suppose. But, but there's other things going on while this is happening. Mm-hmm. You know, there's other projects and I just did, a, um, I did a record with Andrea Bocelli, which come out. It's a Christmas album. I did, a record with Raul Midon, which will be out in 2020 as well. Um, and, uh, and then there's a couple other things that I probably shouldn't say anything about, but right, they're, right. they're pretty exciting that I think, you know, once we get the green light about it, then we can give you the updates on it. But yeah, there's, there's some exciting things going on cool, for sure. Cool. As far as gear is concerned, you know, like Zildjian Sonar, Vic Firth, Remo. Um, and, uh, I use, uh, um, these uh, uh shit no, i'm forgetting the name earthworks microphones oh yeah now. and yamaha electronics so i'm blessed man I've, i'm surrounded by like gear that's way too good for me to be playing <laughs> but I'm, I'm blessed to be playing it well yeah i ask you know like what what's what's going to come next after hamilton and and you know you're you're like well i'm in a challenging show that's kicking my ass every night i'm playing beautiful gear what yeah nothing nothing is coming after hamilton <laughs> uh, hamilton will hamilton will happen tomorrow happen tomorrow and then you know we listen we take it every every uh every week we're like one day at a time you know, like all oh, this thing, you know, people ask, how long is this going to last? And no idea. Right. Things open and close. You know, we don't think about it that way. We're just grateful for what we have right now and uh, whatever we're blessed to, to get along the way. Of course, you have to want more. Mm. You know, you, you you could sit idle and just come in, play the show and go home right. and be OK. You know, yeah, yeah. but there's more to it. I'll actually be going. This will be my third year. I go out to uh, Maui. Um to perform with the, this awesome all-star band uh, that Shep Gordon puts together to raise uh, money for the homeless. And um, I get to play with uh, the Doobie Brothers, with Michael McDonald, Linda Carter, uh, Alice Cooper, cool. Steven Tyler. I mean, just sh- you couldn't make this shit up. And right. of course, none of it would have happened if, you know, the course of my life hadn't taken, you know, the the steps that it did. So, yeah. Um, so so that, that's something I'm very excited about and I'm really proud of it because this year I've set, uh, forth a plan to help raise, um, $25,000 to, to put towards, uh, the Maui, uh, Maui food bank, which oh, will great. help, uh, feed a majority of the, the homeless people in, in, in Maui along with the, the other contributions, of course. Yeah. Well, it sounds like, I mean, I think people ask, you know, aren't you sick of the show? Because I think a, a lot of people's, tendency my myself included would would just be to get complacent um 
either either musically or professionally or whatever. And I w- I've been in that position where I, I was a staff musician at Disneyland for four years, and right. and you know that gig made it so I didn't really have to hustle. And um, you know I did I did other stuff outside of Disney, but it it made me just a little lazier than I would have been if I didn't have that gig. I mean, it sounds like you've you've kind of avoided that trap and uh, st- stayed hungry on two fronts. You know, stayed hungry to just always make the show as good as it can be and always try to do it better than you did the night before, but also stay hungry for, you know, other, other types of experience, other gigs, other musical, uh, adventures. And, uh, it's, it's, it's inspiring, man. Good on you. Oh, thank you, man. Well, you know, we, I'll send you, uh, uh, I did, uh, wrote, directed and produced a, uh, documentary, um, called the day in the life. And mm. we premiered it at PASIC last year. And um, it features three friends of mine. And uh, the original idea was to just do a presentation at PASIC with the three guys and then uh, have a roundtable discussion. Then one morning I woke up and I was frantic and like, oh, my God, I have to make a film. Never made a film in my life. And I had two and a half weeks, not even two weeks to PASIC. Wow. So I had two weeks to film this thing. And I just said, you know what, I'm going to do this thing. And I called Shep Gordon. I said, Shep. Uh, I don't know how to make a film. What do I do? He's like, you know, write your storyline out. And he gave me some great pointers on what to do. And, and Shep Gordon, it. by the way, is Alice Cooper's manager. That's right. right. Yeah. And so, okay. And Mike Myers did a documentary on him. Supermensch. Supermensch. Yeah. Right, right. And that's how I actually got to know. Uh, I got to know Shep. And Shep and his family are great fans of the show. And so he's he's a he's a incredible incredible human being and he's become a very very dear friend so um you know he's he's all those things and more that you see in the film he's just a sort of a a, you know larger than life person but uh so the film this film is uh, 30 minutes long now but it's being turned into an hour long and we're going to take it to film festivals as well uh next year and um it's had a great response you know we we were blessed to have some great uh broadway drummers some some producers and also music directors and contractors on it getty lee and alex lifeson are on it mike wow. portnoy i mean it was like and those guys were on there to help legitimize the fact that yeah this is a really important medium and it's not really where you go to finish your career now. This is where you start your career. Yeah. And people are flocking to come here to do these shows. And look, if you want to have a family, you want to talk about education, here's your education. Yeah. And that's what I told the folks at PASIC. I said, look, we can go there and blow chops and play solos all day, get a picture and a stick and leave. Or we can go there and actually talk about a fundamental way to, to make a living when you're ready to do it mm-hmm. and to bring fresh blood into a already saturated industry and continue to, to thrive it with new people and new sensibilities. Um, and, and that's what we did. And that, in the film, I think I'm most proud about that is that the film actually gives you a starting point. If you have questions about what to do, this film through the stories and lives of these wonderful people that allowed us to, to talk about it, uh, tells you not about the notes they play, but about the struggles that they've been through to get to where they are and, mm-hmm. and the steps they took to make it happen. Yeah. And when you so, say a, a, the, the title of it is A Day in the Life, and it's it's referring to a day in the life of a Broadway musician? The pit musician, yeah. yeah. Yep. Cool. Cool. So I'll send I'll send it to you the half the the half an hour version of it. Great, so. yeah, I would love to see that. Is it is it viewable for the general public yet or, or no? Okay, no, it's not yet because we actually that's part of the exciting news. We have some some really cool things happening uh, with 
potentially with it. And I'll know more about that in the next month or so. But um, if, if this does happen, it's going to be seen quite a bit. Cool. So, cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, I would, I would love to see uh, the, the working version. <laughs> yeah. I'll send, I'll send it to you. Yeah. I'll send it to you for sure. Cool. And uh, man, I, it's been so lovely to, to spend this time with you. Yeah. I really, it. really appreciate it, man. It was great to hear, uh, great to hear about what you got going on there and just look forward to, to more. <laughs> Come to New York. Yeah, I'm. It's it's on my list, man. I'm, when you do it, let me know, and you come down and sit with me. Yeah, I I, I remember seeing Q's video that he took. He took like a, a brief video of you, I think, in in the pit when he was down there, and it was <laughs> it was intense. It was amazing. Oh man, well, I look I look forward to having you, man. Thanks so much, man. All right, you have a good one. Thanks again to Andres. Really dug talking with him. Once again, new content is up on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer and get in on it for as little as $1 a month. We'd really appreciate your support there. Share pics and videos of your gigs on Instagram using the hashtag working drummer for a chance to get reposted in our stories. And of course, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so on Instagram, Facebook, or at workingdrummer.net. Next week, Matthew Krauss will be talking with Zach Stewart, who is first and foremost the drummer for country singer Jared Neiman, but also teaches a high school drum line and runs a karate studio. So that sounds like it's going to be a really interesting cross-disciplinary convo. Hope you check that out, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.